Chinese forces in, in, under the JSOC umbrella were unconventional, but we were another level of unconventional. This is probably the lesson learning one of these transitional roles. Just be open to those odd conversations. Yeah. And I always say I'll, have, I'll, I'll always have the conversation. Hey folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks so much for coming back. I am totally stoked to have a former teammate of mine and a former Navy SEAL Mitch Hall with me today. Before I get going and we, uh, we have a lively chat, I just want to remind you to please go rate this show at iTunes so other folks can find it. And if you're not on an email list, please go to unbeatablemind.com slash podcast. So Mitch, thanks buddy. Welcome back. I know you just got back into town from another adventure back east, but uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I just uh, wrapped up a uh, five-month TV show uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I miss San Diego very much. So it's (laughs) nice to be back. Man, you're looking a little out of shape, by the way. Uh, yeah, that's what uh, 12 to 16 hour days on set and no working out does for you. Oh my god, that sounds brutal. Listen, I want to talk about that, and we'll let we'll let everyone know what Mitch is uh, referring to. An exciting new show coming out on History. Is it History? Yes, History, history Channel. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna um, talk about some other cool things first. So, Mitch, I first met you uh, at SEAL Team Three, Alpha Platoon. <laughs> Back yes. in the day, yes, and uh, you know, affectionately referred to you as Fuzzy, yep, right, because a little bit of the, the peach fuzz. Uh, face. I think yeah. you were eighteen and a half or nineteen at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that nickname came to me from a Vietnam vet, Kirby Harrell. Kirby, yes, who, uh, yeah, because I couldn't grow facial hair, <laughs> hence Fuzzy. So let's talk about your path into the SEAL teams. You know, what what got you interested? Where you were from, and what got you interested in the teams? You know, it, 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 the first thing I'll say is that there was nothing exceptional or there was no indication that this was coming. You know, uh, if you if you would ask my friends from high school if, you know, this guy had the potential to be a Navy SEAL, most would probably say no. Yeah. But a switch flip for me when I was, you know, 16-ish, some, uh, some a cousin of mine and his best friend started talking about this, at, you know, at the time somewhat mysterious group called the Navy SEALs. There was no internet to look all this stuff up. And this is 1990-ish? This, no, this is 1988 when I was 16. So, uh, and there was certainly no SEAL fit or anything. There was just no way to connect to it and find out what the hell it was. I remember that. So it was really kind of a, a mystery and a leap of faith, but uh, it certainly captured my imagination. And uh, well, as soon as I was 18, I signed up and involved the dice. No kidding. So yeah. you went. You just went to a recruiter and you said, I want to be a SEAL. Yes. And they, um, they didn't have any mentor program or challenge contract? Nothing like that. No, nothing like that. It was, as a matter of fact, there was a lot more misinformation you yeah. know, back then. So, uh, and I, I still remember my first day at Bud's after a guy named Senior Chief McCarthy just, just ripped us a new one within probably... Dr. Evil. Probably okay. 15 minutes of being in the compound. The very next day was the first full day of training and I was a decent runner but I hadn't done much swimming. And we did a morning swim in the pool with fins, which again, sounds kind of crazy, but I didn't know we had to swim with fins. I never did any fin swimming leading up to it. And my feet were just destroyed by about, you know, 8.30 in the morning. And then we did a big soft sand run in the afternoon. And uh, no one told me I needed to run in sand. (laughs) And at the end of day one, I basically, you know, told myself like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Mm -hmm. It was, uh, but... You know, being an 18-year-old, I was rather resilient, and I was certainly determined. So you woke up the next day and 
Got yeah, you just you just you just keep adding the layers. You know, every day you do it, and that's if there's an easy part to buds, um, if you can just wrap your head around it, you just say, and the next day, and the next day, and, and everyone's suffering together. You're not by you're not you're not by yourself right. uh, unless you put yourself in, by yourself in your mind. But you know, when you're when you're out there being surf tortured and you're freezing cold, you just look to the right and the left, and there's a dude suffering right there with you. So right. in that sense, and that's kind of what I told the guys, you know, training for the show here. It, that to me makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, what buds class were you in? Remember? I was uh, in class one eighty. Yeah, one eighty. You can never forget your buds class. <laughs> <laughs> what were you in? I was one seventy. Okay, so exactly yeah. ten. Ten after. Yeah. So that was about three. I think, yeah, and there's uh, three years. yeah six classes a year. So yeah. Right. yeah. So one day at a time, Shaq. I definitely agree with that. One evolution at a time when things get really tough. And your teammates are there suffering with you. Mm-hmm. Did you have any particular other strategies that you're aware of now that you think led to, you know, you being one of the guys standing there tall on the grinder, earning the trident? Um, I mean, what, how did you manage your mental and emotional state as an 18-year-old I play, kid? I played a little game with myself. And I, and I will say this, being 18 is a... I don't know if I want to say disadvantage, yeah. but there's a giant difference between an 18-year-old and a 22-year-old. Absolutely, yeah. A lot happens in those three or four years. But, uh, you know, I felt, and I played this game with myself, and I'll say this, and, and some people would may doubt that, but I never once considered quitting. Right. Like, it never crossed my mind. Like, I will, they're going to carry me out of here in an ambulance or some other way, but I'm not voluntarily saying I'm done. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I had... I didn't have shitty days. Right. I had a lot of them. There were days where I underperformed. There were days I did well, but it never crossed my mind to quit. And that's just a game I played with myself. I just, you know, I came from a, a questionable town, Waukegan, Illinois. And uh, <laughs> there was no way I was going back there. You know, I was moving furniture. And I just told myself, like, there's nothing back there for me. If I don't do this, I'm either going to be, you know, part of the fleet, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's not what I wanted, or I'm going back to Illinois. And I didn't want that either. So it never crossed my mind to quit. Yeah. Not once. Did you go in with that as a strategy or? I think it just developed. Just I think it developed. developed. I mean, it, it, you know, again, I was, I think in, on some level, the guys that make it through training have that going in. They have something about them that, first of all, made them even try. Right. Of course, there's still a high attrition rate, but that strategy just showed itself to me very early on. Uh, you know, even that first day when I, you know, like I said, I was a deer in the headlights. Like, what the hell have I done? McCarthy wasn't notorious. Like, yeah. he was there when I was there. He was mm-hmm. just notorious for being just vicious. Like, yeah. you know, they don't allow instructors like him anymore. No, 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 no. <laughs> just um, you know, there were, there were, uh, there were, not to shed the light too much on, on the, how the sausage is made, but yeah, there were a lot of things then that instructors could do that they can't do now. It doesn't mean training's easier. For, right. You know, um, it just means... There's less stuff happening outside the lines. The lines yeah, are lot, pretty wide, right? A lot of the personality, not a, not all the personality, but some of the personality and subjectivity is taken out. It's really metrics driven. Yeah, much more metrics driven, much more professionalized, and in ways that allowed us to 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 amp it up and go harder. Yeah, and be more aggressive in other ways. You know, yeah. you're not taking guys out back and beating them up behind the yeah, box yeah. like they were in the set. And the other thing too is when you. When you don't have those those guidelines in place, you can actually lose a guy that probably should have made it. Correct. 
you know, so I, I think there's a happy medium. I think the, the instructors, and I was an instructor, we should have the means to do what we feel is necessary as the gatekeepers for, for training. But, you know, these guys are going to be, you know, teammates. And I remember I was a third phase instructor and we got some new instructors in. They were rather young guys. You know, I went there after 14 years, I was an instructor. Hmm. And some of the guys that came in after their four-year mark or six-year mark were rather, uh, some of them, not all of them, some of them were pretty riled up and they wanted to, it was like their turn to beat down on students. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, having conversations with them like, guys, number one, we're in third phase. You're not going to do anything to make these guys quit. This is about training them to be your future teammate. Mm -hmm. So let's do less of the beat downs and more mentoring because this guy's already proven he's here. Right. So now it's about training him. But some guys, you know, some guys would, they had a, they struggled to find that balance, but ultimately they did. It was just a, kind of a letter correction right. um, for new instructors. Right. I've often used that, you know, with our SEAL fit training saying, you know, that this really is a teammate selection process yeah. and you can look at the instructors as these godlike, you know, arbiters of your future, or you can look at them as your future teammates and ask for help and, you know, try, accept their guidance and, you know, smile and be a good person. And there are cases where you have a, a talented athlete who, who's meeting the numbers, but just is not a good teammate and has right. a horrible attitude and right. the instructors will find a way and you know, uh, to get them out of training because they, they're like, you're not going to. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, that could be a performance drop for lack of right. leadership or just, you know, they see, they see the writing on the wall and this guy's not going to fit. Right. Um, and those are, those are harder to do for sure. Um, to, to make that case if a guy's meeting the numbers, but he, but he, for some reason he just doesn't fit, but it's still very possible yeah. and it needs to be done on occasion. Yeah. You know, as a former uh, instructor and you know, just put your instructor head on, what do you think about this notion of, or the, the pending issue of women coming through training? You know, this, this could be rather unpopular. I actually did an interview for a local news station when uh, that came down the pipe. I think, was it two years ago? I think we are potentially tinkering with something that doesn't necessarily need, it's not broken. Yeah. And I think we're talking about a group of women that is so small that it's not a cost effective or resource effective thing to pursue. Right. I mean, when you really think about it, how many women out there, number one, want to be SEALs? And out of those women, because there's a high attrition rate even for males, right? right? So let's just say in the nation, I don't know. Let's just say in the nation, there are 150 girls that would even, even desire to be this person. Out of those girls, there's going to be, at least in the beginning, there's going to be a lot, I, I feel there's going to be a lot higher attrition rate than for men. I think, I think out of 150, you might get five. Five. Yeah. Five. I mean, is that where you want to spend resources recruiting and building new locker rooms and new facilities? Do you want to build new locker rooms or do they just do the same things that they're going to have to do in the field with the guys? So, I think it's, I think issues. it's a lot to chase for a, a little return. Yeah. Um, and that may not be a popular thing, but you know, I think women, men and women are different and I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. Well, a lot of people and a lot of listeners don't really understand or realize that women serve alongside men in the special operations community already. And, yeah. and some of our most valuable Intel assets are, are the females I mean, who can put a burqa the, on. The logistics. Yeah. The I mean, I mean, they're, they're already, yeah, you're absolutely right. They're already serving, but I, you know, we are different. We're different physically. We're different emotionally. Historically, throughout the beginning of time, and there are examples of women fighting, but generally speaking, elite combat has been a 
a male arena. And, uh, uh, and I know it's unpopular. I keep saying that, but I just don't know if it's worth tinkering with. Yeah. Uh, I can remember, uh, you, you probably remember this too. When no, women no, first no, went on carriers. Get back to that. I don't know if yeah. it's unpopular. I, I think it's just difficult to have a rational conversation. About yeah, it is. Because it is. people just get wrapped up in yeah. their political correctness and think, yeah. oh, I'm not supposed to say that. Yeah. I completely agree with you. I think that, you, you know, you're messing with 60 years of, of trial and error in, in creating the most elite special operations team, yeah. right? In the history of man since probably the, you know, the Spartans. And you don't mess with that without a lot of testing and trial and error yeah. and probably starting with other units where the, the capital cost as well as the cost of failure are much lower. And you could feel, I mean, you, if you were watching the, the media when this really gave way, you could feel the politics in it. Oh, for sure. And, you know, even some of our, some of our top brass kind of, you could tell they were almost forced to, to toe the party line. Right. And then as soon as they were out of that seat, they rescinded that comment, you know, and they backpedaled. Right. You know, I, I can remember when women first went on carriers. I seem to remember, I think it was four or six women went on the, one of the first carriers. And it was something like, I could be speaking out of turn here. It was a giant cost to retrofit the carrier to give them the facilities they yeah. needed for, you know, for a small return on the investment. Again, how many women want to, and I would, yeah, so I would love to find out. It's a different discussion to say, yeah. can and women make it through? So yeah. There, there's there are women. Definitely women who can yeah. go through. There certainly are. Absolutely. Is it worth chasing? Is it worth chasing for the, for the amount of women that actually desire to do it? I would love to hear how many women, I, I would love to see a, some poll about how many women nationwide actually want to be a SEAL. Yeah. Well, we might find out. Admiral Harward and I are working on a project called A Few Good Women. <laughs> Interesting. To test this. Yeah. Right. To, to, it, it won't be an ideal test because yeah. there's no way we can recreate buds. Yeah. But we're going to try to recreate for the, the three weeks leading up to Hell Week and Hell Week to the exact standards and put uh, 30 men and 30 women who want to be SEALs through. And this is going to be um, hopefully A&E project. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, we don't know the outcome. We're not, I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious. Let's let's talk offline about this as well. I'm, I, I want to I want to know the uh, yeah the particulars. Yeah. Here. All right. So um, enough about buds and women and seals. <laughs> we went yeah. down a rabbit hole quickly on that one, didn't we? Yes, we did. <laughs> That's what I love about these conversations. You never know where they're going to go. So you served for quite a long time in the SEAL team. Twenty one years. Twenty one years. Twenty one years. You, you got started SEAL Team Three. Did a few. Yep. Pumps there, and then and then where'd you go from there? So I went to uh, after six or seven years, I went to Navy Special Warfare Development Group, which is now you know the the veil has been lifted, which is now also known as SEAL Team Six, which only recently have I even been comfortable saying out loud. Um, <laughs> well, now, because now, everybody else has said it out loud. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's not a secret anymore, and it's kind of foolish to even think that it is. You know, we'll keep the details of what they do you know, relatively veiled, but, uh, to, to not, to not say it is, is kind of foolish, I think at this point, yeah. but yeah, I went there and, uh, I, I can remember that process as well. And actually Mark, you would probably remember part of that decision-making. I believe I wasn't even fully aware that that place existed. And again, this is 1991, 92, 93, in that time frame where I thought I was, I thought I'd reached the top rung. SEAL Team 3 by, you know, becoming a SEAL and checking into my first SEAL team. And then I think it was, it might have been, there were rumors about the place existing, but I remember 
a newspaper clipping, literally a newspaper clipping on a bulletin board about Haiti mm-hmm. and about, you know, some vague report about, you know, this, this command on the East Coast having a part in that or showing up there. And that was kind of the, uh, as I remember anyway, that was the, the catalyst for me and a couple other of our teammates yeah. to say, that's where I got to be. Yeah. Well, they used to come, I don't know how they do this election now, but they used to actually have a um, kind of like a recruitment period and yeah. and come out and do interviews and stuff. And I remember when you and Lou and a couple other folks did your interviews. Yep. And um, yeah, they would come to town once or twice a year. But even that was, again, it was not like it is now where it's pretty official. You know they're coming far in advance. It was just this yeah, it was very kind of, yeah. I, don't, I won't call it secretive, but it just wasn't talked about much. Yeah, and back in the day, they would do this recruitment and they'd bring names back of guys they thought that, you know, yep. passed the interview who they thought would would be good uh, operators and good teammates. And then they would literally murder board them. That's what they called yep. it. Yep. And, you know, they put your face up on a screen and it was like an up-down vote. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. And I was, you didn't get all thumbs up. You didn't get invited. Yeah. To yeah. Them. And then, you know, once you get there, you're part of that. You know, you, uh, yeah, you find out, you know, guys, hey, we're screening this batch of guys from, you know, whatever command. Do you know them? What's the dirt on them? I mean, you, and it's, again, think about that. If you were to, it, it is done in the corporate world, but probably not in the same manner. Right. Um, not with the, I don't know if I want to call it ruthlessness, but, it's not politically correct. I mean, you want to, again, we're, we're dealing with, with lives here and you want to know that the guy coming into that command is who he says he is and you want to know the dirt on him and you want to know if there's going to be any, any backlash to him being right. there. Right. Well, I think it, it speaks to the fact that in the SEALs, your capital is your reputation. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was in, I worked on Wall Street, as you know, before the SEALs. And I wasn't a trader or anything like that, but I used to be, I was around on the floor in an investment banking world and, and these guys, they were just so intensely aware of what everyone else earned. Yeah. Right? And so that was the whole pecking order. And I, I remember meeting a guy who was a total asshole who earned $800,000 in the year that I was there. And he lost the firm $800,000 on one trade. <laughs> so he was pretty much a wash. For yeah. Firm, you know? Net but, zero. Yeah, the net zero. And, and he was just so arrogant because he, you know, he's walking around thinking, I, I earned $800,000. And you, you little boy, you're an auditor. And I know that you only earned like $40,000. So you're right. pretty much nothing or nobody to me. In the SEAL teams, it's all reputation. Yeah. Right? How many tours you have? Now it's how many combat tours you have. Yeah. What was your performance in combat? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's pretty interesting. And, and, and rightfully so. I mean, everyone earns the same amount. Yeah. And it's not much. It's not much. <laughs> right? And, and you're not doing it for that. You're doing yeah. it for obviously other reasons. Fascinating. What were some of, you know, as much as you can tell, what were some of the most interesting things you did at Damnet Development Group? You know, the, I'd say that the biggest takeaway from that place was, well, to answer your question directly, with the squadron I was with, we were the first guys to deploy in 2001 to Afghanistan, like the very first guys. Okay. You know, we had us and our Army counterparts, our Air Force counterparts, and we were the very first push into Afghanistan before there was a Bodwin. We were sitting on a carrier off in the Indian Ocean, uh, then went to a, a small island off Oman, and then ultimately pushed into, into Bodwin. But... You know, it was interesting to be the first guys there and to figure out what, how we're going to prosecute this war. We, you know, very early on did. Did you have any, at that point, did you have any interaction with the Green Berets or or interfacing with the Northern Alliance? And no, not much, not much. We were very aware of what was happening there. And we actually, you know, my squadron was the the ones that pulled Karzai 
out before he was, you know, most likely yeah. uh, KO'd. But it, it was an interesting time, and and uh, I was super proud of that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not many, not many military units get to say they were the first ones there. Right. And we did some some hostage rescue early on. You know, the very first hostage rescue of the op. It was it. It was just. It was interesting because you always, you know, nine eleven happened. Everyone was rather emotional. We were who we were, and we thought like, okay, let's let's take let's take the gloves off and let's go kick some ass. And uh, it's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to figure out, you know, again, war is seventy five percent logistics. You got to get in place. You got to get a strategy in place um, before you just start unleashing hounds. And we were young and emotional, and nothing had happened for years and years, and we were we were ready to go, almost maybe too ready to go. Right. So, and it was a very competitive environment between us and our army counterparts to see who's going to get the first op or the most important op, <laughs> which is good, you know, it's a yeah. healthy competition. But everyone was, and we, you know, that place was the Super Bowl, the redheaded stepchild of JSOC. Though I, I mean, we were absolutely. No one understood us. We spoke a different language. We used boat crews instead of teams. The army and the generals that ran JSOC at the time didn't know what the hell a boat crew was. Is that four guys or is that 60 guys? Like you're speaking a different language. How long had the unit been deployed under JSOC? How well, long had that been going on? Well, so, so, so Delta and, and, and Dev Group had been part of JSOC since, you know, right around 1980. Okay, so that was, was early on. Was and that was, yeah. So then, you know, fast forward to 2001, not much had happened in those 21 years. And JSOC um, had never been led by an animal. No, not and we still weren't then. Yeah. You know, we had an army, we had an army general in place at the time. And, and we had to, we had to fight. Our, first of all, you have the maritime component to JSOC, you know, we're supposed to, which means we're supposed to be in and around water. Hmm, right. um, and in Afghanistan, there's no water. So they looked at us, and rightly so, our our army counterparts, like, what the hell are you doing here? Especially because it was competitive. They didn't want to share the the operations with with a maritime unit. And so we had to prove ourselves. And, 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 you know, we had, throughout the years, proven ourselves to be somewhat the black sheep of JSOC. We didn't always wear our uniforms properly. We didn't, you know, there was some unprofessional stuff we were doing that earned us that second seat. But fast forward 15 years and things have changed. Right. And uh, we've proven ourselves on land and in the water. It turns out that that black sheep attitude can be effective in combat. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the old adage of, in case of war, break glass. Mm -hmm. Keep the seal behind the glass. (laughs) You know, the, the, all those forces in, in, under the JSOC umbrella are unconventional, but we were another level of unconventional. And again, sometimes it bit us in the ass, but I think most, most of the time it was to our advantage and we matured very quickly and, uh, we are where we are now. And, you know, it, we could screw it up by some bad decisions, of course, but I don't think we will in the, in the near future. And it's good that we had a chance to prove ourselves. Yeah. Hey folks, I want to take a moment to let you know about a product I've been using over the past month or so. I don't do this very often, but there's a few products that I think that you need to know about, and this is one of them. It's called the Clean Energy Patch. It's basically a cleaner way to get energy without using energy drinks like Rockstar, you know, Red Bull, or those those shots that come in the little plastic bottles. 
those things just rot your gut. The clean energy patch, however, you just slap it on your arm and it slowly energizes you or keeps you energized throughout the day. Originally designed for athletes and military members to boost performance naturally without those side effects like jitters and dehydration, which are going to degrade your performance. And let me tell you what, it does what it says. I was so impressed with it that I asked if they'd be willing to give a discount to you, listeners of this podcast, so you can try it too. So Clean Energy Patch is offering a 20% discount to all Unbeatable Mind listeners on your first order. Use the code UNBEATABLE2016 at www.cleanenergypatch.com to take advantage of the offer. And check out the show notes below for more information. What do you think about the O'Neill and this and that nightmare? It's it's unfortunate that it went in the media, but of course the media is gonna gonna dig that stuff up and, and sensationalize it and overreport it. So, uh, and they're gonna pit each other, you know, pit the guys against each other as best they can to to make more media out of it. So, um, I you know I don't like the fact that they were bickering or seemingly bickering through the media. It was a great op. It's one of the you know all time great ops. Classic. Yeah, we're talking and, about the Bin Laden raid. By yeah, the way. and, and, and oh. any seal. Would, would love to be on that operation, yep. but uh, they did a kick-ass job, and they put that, that, that storyline to bed, Right, and uh, it was long overdue. I'm glad we did it. I wish we could do it every year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, pull, them out of, uh, pull them out of the ocean, prop them up, and do it again. <laughs> well, so... <laughs> You've been out just for a couple of years. What was the state of the teams? You know, where were we at, like professionally, and from a kind of a uh, esprit de corps standpoint? And where where are we going? Uh, in a good direction? How healthy is the community right now? I think we're I think we're very healthy, but we are in between conflicts. While that sounds like I'm wishing for another conflict, I'm not. But there is a retraction. In these lulls, you know, people get out, especially guys that have that have tasted the fresh meat. So that'd be surprising for a lot of people to hear. People are hearing that we're kind of ramping things up in Iraq again, and we're now we got guys on the ground in Syria, and it seems like I mean, there were everything over there all the years or fifteen years yeah. of work. It's just still a mess. Well, I'm not sure if we're I'm not sure if this is going to address that exact point, but I will say that a guy getting into the SEAL teams right now, or a guy at SEAL team, whatever is not guaranteed a combat tour. Right. Whereas for 12 years or more, you were almost guaranteed a combat tour. But that being said, the SEAL teams are a great place to be, right. even in peacetime. I mean, I uh, and it's fun. It's fun to train. It's fun to train hard. It's fun to test new gear. It's fun to test new tactics, all getting ready for the next one. Mm-hmm. And uh, you need to be patient. And most likely, history says you'll get your turn mm-hmm. if you do, if you go long enough. You know, I in, in many ways, I guess I can say this because I got a, a, a big bite of it, but in many ways, I'm glad I didn't get to go to com- into combat when I was a 23 or 26-year-old. Right. I went in with a more mature attitude, and I do think that's a, a huge advantage. Yeah. The same way I said earlier, that's, there's a big difference between an 18 and 22-year-old. There's a huge difference between a 22 and a 32-year-old. Yeah. And you're dealing with complex situations on the grounds where the decisions you make can, you know, win and lose wars. Mm-hmm. You know, when you shoot the wrong guy because he was doing uh, something that was questionable, whether you want to call it probing or tactically moving, 
uh, because that's the gray area. There's a huge gray area in the battlefield. If you make the wrong decision, you can lose a village. And over there, you lose a village or a tribe. And now maybe they thought the Americans were the good guys or they were undecided. And now they've made their choice. Yeah. And that's happened. Many and times. so you need a mature person. Sometimes it's just as important to know when not to pull the trigger Correct. on something. Even though everyone wants, they, you know, they kind of measure their manhood on a kill. Right. Which is, again, as a 32 or 40-year-old, or for my, for my part, 40, almost 44-year-old, um, I see that very clearly now. Yeah. But usually a 20-something-year-old will not see that that clearly. Right. What was the most challenging thing that you had to encounter, or uh, toughest situation where you had to either fight your way out of it or think your way out of it? Um, well, that, that's actually a very easy question. I was, I was part of a – I was ambushed. Our, you know, our, our platoon was ambushed in 2007. And on paper, it was supposed to be a very easy op. We were going to go get atmospherics in a certain region in Iraq. And uh, we were supposed to just go in, have a look, and then see if there's some, some work to do later on. But there were a couple probably bad decisions made uh, with our leadership, and including myself, which led to us compromising ourselves. We were ambushed in broad daylight, and you know we had to fight our way out of it. And it was probably the only, maybe one of two or three times where I thought, like, I'm not, I, and I, I'm totally serious when I say this, I'm not sure... We're getting out of here today. And it was that bad where we were just absolutely pinned down, getting uh, fired on from two or three directions. Was this urban? We were in a town. It was. Um, it was rural. We were in a building, but it was not a uh, kind of you know downtown or a heavily. Right. Yeah. So there was it was you know some fields, some buildings, definitely a rural environment. But you know we just uh, we got on the radio calling some other people uh, and just took it one bad guy at a time and worked together. And we got out of there with, you know, one guy hurt, but that day had a lot of potential to go sideways and be one of the, one of the worst days in SEAL history. Mm. And we didn't let it happen. So kudos to the guys on that, that mission. Right. You know, I, I've heard variations of that story, not your story, but yeah. variations of that <clears throat> so many times. And it's a, it's just something, it's a testament to the SEAL mindset, you know, that started, starts in the training that we talked about earlier in the Bud's training yeah. of just, you know, when the shit hits the fan, break it down to the smallest, smallest action to victory. Mm -hmm. And that, that means, you know, find the bad guy and shoot him and then find the next bad guy and yeah. shoot him, you know, and pause, assess the situation and then do it again and again and again. And, you know, with that mindset, right, guys yeah. have fought their way out of just unbelievable odds. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's just, you know, it's measuring, uh, deciding and then taking action and repeat. Right. So, right. so let's uh, shift focus now. We've been going for about 30 minutes and I'm sensitive to your time. And let's talk about your transition from the SEAL team to the civilian world. That, that's a tricky one for a lot of SEALs. You know, it's difficult for us to find anything that's nearly as exciting and adventurous and, yeah, you know, we're not getting sure. shot at in the civilian world, which is which is good for the most part, but, um, or you're just not doing the cool training. You know, it's, it's hard to do, it's hard to find a job where you're, you know, paid to breach doors or paid right. to, you know, to do a better, you know, shoot uh, air operation, or, you know, skydiving or whatever, or, or shoot. So, um, yeah, the transition for me was, 
I was going into the sports production business. Uh, you know, I, I ran uh, Super Frog for Mookie Martin, you know, an old frog man who yeah. started basically was the beginning of the sport of triathlon, right. which is a sport that I love and did for a lot of years and still do. And I saw a lot of opportunity in that, that particular event. It was rather small at the time. And I just saw an opportunity there. And uh, so I worked with, with Moki to, to basically grow the event. And that was, that was my plan. I was going to turn my passion into a business. And then I got an odd phone call from the entertainment industry for a movie called Zerdar 30. And the writer wanted a technical advisor to help them, you know, make the movie real. Right. And I was not even a little bit interested. No kidding. Um, Why did they call you? How did they? Uh, I think a buddy of mine, uh, Paul Tharp, I think, yeah, who you know. Uh, I think he's, if I remember right, he was at a fundraiser for the Navy SEAL Foundation. And I think one of the producers or writers was there. And I don't know why Paul thought of my name to this day, but he mentioned me. They got a hold of me. And so I had this conversation with a writer who's an Academy Award winning writer. But it just wasn't a direction that I was, had even contemplated. But I heard the guy out. And this is probably the lesson for anyone who's transitioning is to just be open to those odd conversations. You yeah, know? Exactly. And I always say I'll have, I'll, I'll always have the conversation. I mean, unless it's something obviously against my principles or something, but I always have the conversation. I'll have that 15 minute conversation and say, okay, what did the guy say? What does this mean for me? I've been wrong enough times to where I, I owe it to myself to have those conversations. Right. So I, 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 you know, they needed me on short fuse too. They needed me. I think it was in Jordan for filming it was something ridiculous, like four or six days from the, the first phone conversation. So I'm thinking like, <laughs> what the hell guys? Like you just found out you're making a movie. And, uh, so I thought about it over the weekend, got back to him and said, okay, I'll do it with the, with, you know, thinking that I can always just get on a plane and leave if I don't like it. And what happened was I, you know, and it's funny. I tell the story a lot to uh, some of my entertainment buddies now, but, I figured I'd go over there and it would be, be just a bunch of Hollywood douchebags and I would hate it and I'd be on a, you know, a plane within days. And it turned out I was exactly wrong. The people were amazing and uh, I found that I had a kind of a knack and really enjoyed blending the creative and authentic. Mm. And I was able to communicate with the director, in that case, Catherine Bigelow, very well. And we always found that middle ground. You know. You know, good filmmaking is about exactly that blending, making something that captures the imagination, but making it also feel like it could be real. Right. So you can connect to it. Yeah. Zero Dark Thirty did a really good job of that. Yeah. I, you know, I think so. And I'm very, I'm very proud of that movie. And of course there are things that are, you know, a few things that are inaccurate. You can pick any film apart, but I think we nailed it. And uh, I think most people agree that we nailed it. And uh, I enjoyed the process. And that just opened the door, you know, because that film was uh, critically acclaimed. It opened the door for me to look at other other entertainment projects and of all of all kinds. You know, I've, now I've done two Call of Duty video games, hmm. which I don't play video games at all, but I truly, truly enjoy that same process. It just has another twist on it. That's even more. We can push the the limits of reality because, in some cases, it's near future. And we can think about a weapon system like, you know, what, what, do, I, what do I wish a gun could do right. that it doesn't do right now? And, uh, you know, can we shoot around corners or shoot through walls or whatever it is? And we can actually make that happen in a video game, but we can make it seem plausible. Right. Um, and that's cool. That's really cool. 
So that's anyway, I found myself in this entertainment industry and I love it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've met a lot of great people, people that are friends of mine now, and they were not the Hollywood douchebags that I thought they were going to be in the beginning. Uh, um, Let's talk about your current project. Who's the uh, producer behind that? So uh, this project called Six is a, uh, as the name implies, it's about Navy Special Warfare Development Group. And it, it's basically the story of these operators and their normal lives. Right. Which is the human face of this. Yeah, life. we've seen the superhuman aspect to it. But the reality is these guys are normal and they go to Home Depot and they mow their lawn just like everyone else does. Mm-hmm. But when they go to work, they do, you know, this exceptional work. And it's a story and, and you know, and it's in a lot of cases about the cost. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't ask you can't ask most people to do that job without them paying the bill, right. and you know they go overseas. They see a lot of different things over there. They're hard charging, uh, but they have to come home, and they have to keep families together, and they have to pay bills, and uh, they're trying. To, they try to have kids. They just they're normal. They're just like the rest of us. Even though most people look at them and think that they're not normal. They have the same exact problems we do. Yeah. All of us do. We've often said that you know you could be sitting next to the seal in church and not know it. Exactly. exactly. So, so about how much of the show is like action guys, you know, doing ops, and how much is the guy, you know, coming home, kissing the wife? You know, I would say it is. Um, I'd say sixty-five, thirty-five, maybe, maybe slightly, and that's that's operation to uh, so it's got to home life. Definitely has an adventure action edge to it. Then. Sure, but I, but I think you know it, we'll see where it lands in the editing room. But we're pushing for closer to fifty-fifty. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's that's a you know it's always a, a discussion that you know, the creators have with the executives. And they bounce that off what they think the audience wants. Do they create like early episodes to kind of test that? Um, that um, no. What they what they do is in, in post production they edit it in a way that is balanced one way or the other. And yes. they, they watch that they watch that unfinished episode, and they say, "What do we like here? What do we what do we don't you know what right. do we not like?" And uh, it, it's actually I'm, I'm learning a lot. It's it's quite a process, and there are struggles just like in any. Any enterprise where you have the creators struggling with the with the executives, and again they find that happy medium, just like we do with the creative versus the authentic. You know, you gotta you gotta blend the two, and I think we're doing a really good job at it. And I think we found that kind of that middle ground that everyone can 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 feel confident about. Yeah. Now these actors right, are going to um, portray elite Navy SEAL commandos. So how how did you go about preparing them for that job? So, um, for that role. you know, the funny thing is casting went really, really late. Again, kind of like that phone conversation to ask me to go to Jordan and help with, uh, with ZD30. Um, the casting came down to the wire. We had the show, they bought all eight episodes, but casting literally came down to, you know, I think we wanted to start our boot camp phase of, of training these guys on a Monday. And I think casting literally went down to the Thursday before, you know, trying to find the right characters, the right people for each of these roles. So as we were kind of forming this idea and finding out who we were going to cast, in the meantime, in parallel, we knew we had to train them. Mm-hmm. And one of the producers on, on the show had also been part of Band of Brothers. He had done a lot of work with a boot camp-like experience for those actors, for Band of Brothers and The Pacific, which are exceptional shows. Yeah. And uh, it was easy to know that we had to do something similar for these mm-hmm. guys, considering who they were portraying. So instead of reinventing the wheel... I knew you and, you know, you're, you live a, like literally a mile 
and a half from my house. I was like, I could recreate this experience or I could just send them to the, the factory that's literally down the street for me. Why, why, why reinvent the wheel? And you had the, the means that the, the personnel to actually pull this off where I'd have to start from scratch. So, uh, we, you know, you and I started talking about it and determined that we could pull this off and got these guys in rather quickly. I think we were I'm trying to think of how long it took for us to put this together. It was, I knew we knew we were going to do it weeks in advance, but we didn't know who was attending. We didn't know who, and, and, yeah. and the time frame kept shifting. So we wanted it right. longer. And, and right, right, right. Yeah, we wanted five days. We wanted it longer and harder. And, and yeah, and we ended up with four days. And, and, you know, my hat's off to each of the actors because they had almost no prep. You know, it's yeah. not like they had been working for this role for, for eight weeks or something. They had days. Right. Um, so we had to feather the training accordingly so we don't break them. But, uh, you know, as we were talking about before we started recording here, they look back on that as one of the, the pivotal experiences of their lives coming to seal fit yeah. and uh, getting their asses kicked and learning a lot in preparation for the roles yeah. that they were going to do. So we did, we did four or five days here at seal fit. And then I took them with some other teammates and we did some tactical training or shooting guns mm -hmm. and some basic, basic tactics just to get them moving like we do. Mm -hmm. And that was, that gave them the initial training so that they could portray these right. guys, but the, the fact is, we tweaked it every episode. We would have these rehearsals where we'd discuss the scene and go through all the minutiae because it's really when you're portraying an elite force like that, it's it's really the details. You can get to eighty percent rather easily. Mm -hmm. It's that last, last you 20. know twenty percent that's going to separate um, us from every other show. A dynamic um, scene, you know, like a like an intense, you know, house entry that turns into a goat rope. And a firefight and, you know, an extraction that might take, you know, like in, in TV length, a long period of time. Yeah. Let's say five minutes or six minutes. I don't mm -hmm. know. That, that seems like a long period of time. In that is in TV. <laughs> uh, is that, how long does it take to film that and how much like start and stop is involved? A tremendous amount, you know, for each of the, for any, basically for any comprehensive or exceptional action scene that you see in any film anywhere. It's amazingly how inefficient the process is. Mm. And I say that tipping my hat to the process. Mm. You know, for something you see on TV that's, that's kick-ass and action-packed that may last two minutes, that's in TV time, that could be an entire day of shooting, an entire 12-hour mm. day okay. or more. In films and feature films, they often have a lot more time. You know, for Zero Dark Thirty, that action sequence took... I think it was six weeks, five and a half, six weeks to film for 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah, you know, roughly 15 minutes. But in TV time, that schedule has accelerated considerably. But the one thing we were able to do with six is kind of find, again, that happy medium. You know, we shot it like it was a feature mm. to the best of our ability within our time and budget constraints. And uh, that's going to show. It's, there's some pretty amazing stuff that we were able to pull off without the means in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, that's just a, that's a hat. That's a tip of the hat to the writers and the directors we pulled in, and of course the crew that helped us pull it all off. Mm -hmm. But there are long, brutal days, and, and Wilmington got pretty hot there at the end, mm -hmm. and the crew suffered. We suffered. The cast suffered, but we pulled it off. Was it all done, Conus, or did you have some? We were all yeah. It was everything happened in Wilmington, North Carolina. Unreal. So when's the show due to go live? We were initially going to go July 18th. As a matter of fact, there was a, the beginnings of a, a marketing campaign was pushed out there early I on. I remember seeing something. But and it was a very aggressive schedule for everyone, for the writers, for post-production, 
doing all the visual effects, doing all the, the just the, the chopping of the show. And I think the, the studio made a great call in pushing that to right now is an undetermined time. Mm. Um, I think we want to, you know, for a new show, you don't want to go up against the Olympics and we just wanted time to actually chop this show up properly now instead of just being under this really compressed timeline. So we went from July 18th to probably something in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're still trying to find what, what that date is. So mm-hmm. you, you guys will be the, you know, the second to know <laughs> when we find out what that is, but uh, uh, it's actively being discussed as to what the right time to, uh, to air is. Right. And this project hopefully will be an annual thing for you if it's re-upped. I'm pretty something. confident we will have a second season. I mean, yeah. it's to A&E and history's credit, you know, they're leaning forward on it. And it's not, it's a pretty rare circumstance where those entities will just jump in with both feet and buy all the episodes. Yeah. Uh, usually there's a pilot and they, they watch it and they weigh it and they're like, then they then they either go for it or not. But uh, I think everyone felt confident enough in the story and the writers and the producers and the teams to just go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something I know uh, Harvey Weinstein wanted to do for a while now. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty confident we'll be back at it again next yeah. year. And your work isn't done. I mean, you're still needed for the editing floor. And yeah, you know, um, this is gonna we're be- trying to nail. You know, with the show, we're trying to nail everything. And I'll use I'll use a show that I'll use a film that you know I, I imagine you saw in Heat. I can remember, you know, as a young SEAL going to see all these action films and just wondering why they didn't get all these details right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Heat was the first, one of the first times we saw, this is going to sound goofy now because a lot of people have done it, but we saw a magazine change for the first time on film. And we always used to make the jokes about Hollywood guns mm-hmm. where they had an endless supply of bullets and they never had to teach an actor how to change a magazine. And that detail, was, that detail and many others were just glossed over. But we're trying to nail those details as well as other things that are always glossed over, like the visual effects. Mm-hmm. You know, what does tracer fire really look like? What is uh, what does an IR laser really look like? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the air assets and some of the things they provide to us on the battlefield? What does it look like under night vision? Mm-hmm. All those things most people just either take for granted or don't really just sit down and spend the time to to nail. Mm-hmm. And so, in post uh, in post production. You know, we're going to try to address each one of those. Mm. So not only are you going to see, you know, authentic stories, you're going to see all the details, you know, that last 5% addressed. And uh, I think that's what separates, you know, good from great and, and, and everything really, not just in, yeah. in, in filmmaking, but absolutely in life. It's that last 5%. Oh yeah. 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 I think we'll leave it there. The last 5%, that's where the... That's where the money's made. Yeah. That's where the success is. Elite level success. Yeah. Good luck with it. We'll be, we'll be watching for it. We'll help promote it. Mitch, thanks for your time. Thank you. Super appreciate it. Uh, and, th- you know, I'll, I'll thank SealFit yet again for uh, getting our actors yeah. prepped. We hope we can do it again. Maybe it be some annual thing. Every time I the show kicks off with new actors, we'll, we'll The actors up. can't stop talking about it. And they insist that every any new cast member that ever comes along has to do it. That's awesome. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. I, I, in fact, I remember, I forget the guy's name, the guy from South America, Bolivia. Uh, Juan Pablo. Yeah. The guy from Narcos. Narcos, yeah. 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 He came up to me afterwards and like gave me a hug and said, this is the most profound experience he had had. Yeah. You know, and these guys have been through a lot. Yeah. But they'd never been through anything like SEAL Fit or, or DV SEAL training. No, they uh, they bonded. And, and that, that was really the unique thing that the show will will show us is, is that bond that yeah. was created 
in part because of the training they went through here. That's really cool. All right. Thanks again, Mitch. Thank you. All right, folks, you heard it, Mitch Hall. Um, we'll, we'll wish him good luck on the show six and, um, and everything else that comes after that. Maybe we'll have him back uh, later on once we can um, watch the show and, and see what's going on and learn some more. So until next time, thanks for your attention. Stay focused, train hard. Hoo-yah. Bye now. Hey, are you committed to a SealFit event? Are you looking forward to going to Kokoro or SealFit Basic Academy or just starting out with your training? maybe with unbeatable mind. Well, let me recommend the SealFit online community to guide you and aid you in your training. So this is where you're going to get the daily workout programs to either the on-ramp or the op-wad or the soft-wad and great tips from myself and the SealFit coaching staff. And for a short time, if you get one year of the SealFit training, we'll give you $200 off your next SealFit event. So you can save money and get outstanding training Prepare properly with the folks who are bringing you the training itself. Don't miss this one. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the U.S.